Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. In 1971, a new product was launched that would disrupt the processed food industry for years to come. The product was called Cup Noodles. Now, curiously enough, in this same year, a future NFL MVP quarterback was born, and then later in his career, he would be stuck in the crossroads as a grocery store worker, and he probably had to swipe these cup noodles across as he went. But his fate would change when he met this week's guest, culminating in both of their greatest accomplishments in something called a Super Bowl. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Great Scott. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is January 30th, 2000, and we are in Atlanta, Georgia. We've got our fire-burning tires landing in the parking lot of the Georgia Dome. And by golly, there's only a few seconds left on the clock. Super Bowl 34. One more play to go. Steve McNair, he drops back. Kevin Dyson catches the ball over the middle. He's going to score. But wait, there is Mike Jones. He's one yard short. And the Rams win the Super Bowl. The city of St. Louis goes wild. The improbable happens. Kurt Warner, undrafted bag boy, cut by the Packers. Then he joins the Arena Football League, dominates, sent to NFL Europe by the Rams, dominates again. Trent Green goes down, dominates. They win the Super Bowl. And there was at least one person that never wavered. He believed in his players and ultimately also believed that Kurt Warner could take him to the promised land. This guy was head coach Dick Vermeil. Now, this was not his first NFL gig, nor was it the first time he went to the Super Bowl. Coach Vermeil was successful at every level as a coach, and his career just speaks for himself. And speaking for himself, he shall in this week's episode, because we're honored to have a Super Bowl winning head coach ride shotgun with us in the DeLorean. He's going to share his incredible story about a long career that involved not only coaching, but also broadcasting, and now he's also a mentor for many out there, one of the greatest leaders in NFL history. And I'll go ahead and leave links in the show notes for you so you can learn more about Coach Vermeil and maybe even purchase some of his wine. We'll talk about that later in the episode, which by the way, you can get to the show notes through your podcast player or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com. It's the best place to go to get even more information about these topics and guests that I bring on the show. Also, if you'd like to get more involved and help out the show, you can support the show in various ways. You can review the show on all your podcast players, 
You can subscribe for free. You could even offer a donation or even get some merchandise. Again, that's over at the website, thefootballhistorydude.com. But without further ado, let's get into the interview with Coach Dick Vermeule. Hey, Coach, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast. Nice to be with you. Uh, nice to be with you as well. And um, so I worked, I was trying to figure out how I wanted to start with so many questions because you've been in the NFL and you've been in sport or football for a long time. I just had to start at the beginning. What drove you from an early age? Do you remember a specific moment where you were like, you know what, I, I really enjoy this football and I think I might want to do this for a living or something that sparked your passion? Well, you know, I grew up in a small town of 1,800 people. You know, we had 130 kids in our high school. And the football team, to have a team, everybody had to play. Okay. <laughs> in my senior year, uh, a new coach came, just graduated from uh, University of Pacific, was called College of Pacific at that time in Stockton. And he was his first head coaching job. And uh, he inspired me. You know, he was a, a great example in everything he did. He had a lot of passion for the game. He taught me a lot. And he was the first one that ever said to me, you know, Vermeil, if you decided you wanted to, you could probably you could probably play Division One football. No one had ever told me that before, and I didn't have that kind of expectation. I wasn't planning on going to college. I, I was going to work in my dad's garage. We were going to build a new shop, Vermeil and Sons Owl Garage. You know, I was going to fool around with his race cars and go that way. But this coach saying I could play college football, I said, great. But he said, you know, you haven't been doing anything in school, so you're going to have to go to junior college to catch up. So I did. I went to Napa College and played there two years and walked on at San Jose State and earned a scholarship there and ended up starting my senior year, stayed there and got my master's degree. Then Bob Bronson, who was my head football coach there my first year there, so I really started talking to me because he saw that I had a very – uh, sincere interest in the game beyond playing it and, and he said you know I think you would make a fine football coach with uh, all your excitement and, and, and passion for the game and how you love to talk about it at this age He's, and I said well that's what I'm going to try to do I'm going to try to be a high school football coach so lo and behold he got me a head coaching job at Hillsdale High School I one year as an assistant at Del Mar John this is Dr. Robert Bronson calls me up my college coach he says uh, a gentleman from Hillsdale High School in San Mateo is going to call you and offer you the head coaching job there. Now, you're going to have to coach the swimming team, too, but I would take <laughs> it. It's a good opportunity for a young coach. So, you know, lo and behold, it happened. I became a head high school football coach my second year out, won a championship, went to junior college as an assistant for a year, and then I had an opportunity to go as a head coach in junior college, so I took it. <laughs> I was there a season. We had a good se season, and I got a call from John Ralston at Stanford and invited me to be the freshman coach at Stanford. I said, God, that's a great opportunity. And from there on, the, each job just sort of blossomed out of that environment, you know, out of that start. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we, we know that you culminated in the NFL, and that's one reason why I brought you on the show, because this is a history podcast mostly revolving around the NFL. And Speaking of NFL coaches, and you said you kind of fell in and you kind of just blossomed into new uh, different opportunities. Did you, were you ever a student of the game or like really dove into previous coaches before your time and, and kind of studied how they did things? I was a student of the game in the present, not so much in the past. 
a student in the game and learning from the people I started working for, like John Ralston, you know, and then uh, I go from working with John Ralston, I go working with George Allen, Los Angeles Rams as his first special teams coach. And he had a lot of great coaches on his app, Ted Marshall, Broda, Howard Snellenberger, Ray Malavese, these kind of guys. I, I was learning every day I went to work. And then I had the opportunity to go to UCLA and work for Tommy Prothrow, who was a great legendary college coach and be his offensive coordinator. So I left and went there. <laughs> Fortunately, I did. He gets hired the next year to go back to the Rams to be the head coach. So I went back to the Rams with him as the offensive coordinator. Stayed there. We all got fired. They asked me to stay. And then Chuck Knox took the head coaching job. And, uh, you know, I learned from him and Tom Catlin and those kind of guys on that staff. And uh, it was a never-ending process. You know, and along the way, I'd Bill Walsh was the reason I got the freshman job at Stanford. He was working there and he was a graduate assistant at San Jose when I played there. So we had a friendship and we started sharing thoughts and ideas. And of course he was brighter than I am. And <laughs> I learned a lot from him. And then uh, lo and behold, I get called to come back to UCLA to be the head coach. So I go back there and I, you know, I had a great coaching staff there, Terry Donahue, Dick Tomey, Carl Peterson, Lynn Stiles, all these guys, Billy Matthews, Bill McPherson, who just recently passed away, God bless him. And I, then I got the head coaching job at the Philadelphia Eagles. So, I, And then I'm in a situation where I'm learning from <laughs> Tom Landry, you know, uh, Don <laughs> Coriel, uh, Don Shula, Bud Grant, all these legendary coaches as you coach against them. Right, yeah, and you you mentioned Bill Walsh, for instance, and he's known to have a brilliant mind. Uh, if you could try to describe it in one sentence or something like that, how would you describe his mind and how he thought about the game? Well, I think Bill's number one attribute, he was able to make complicated things simple to learn. And he knew exactly what he had to do to coach it, how many repetitions, repetitions it would take to execute it well. But he could he could visualize things, break it down so players could uh, learn it easily, even though it wasn't simple, but he could take complicated things and uh, work his timing scheme and all that in it. And uh, obviously became very, very successful building on that pattern of education, of educating his players and coaching them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important for any kind of level of training or learning or teaching is, for instance, even in our schools, the teachers that are able to take complex algorithms and break them down to the students, be able to explain it in their terms in a way that they can get to their level. It just makes it so then everybody's on the same page. And no I appreciate that from coaches. Yeah. So I've had yeah. multiple no coaches, myself, opposite, uh, yeah. some that have been, uh, no, this is my way. You're going to learn it or you don't. And then I've had the other ones that have taught me the other ways and uh, definitely gravitated towards the ones that were willing to break it down to the yeah. level and everybody on the same page. Uh, you yeah, mentioned, well, you know, I always laugh. People always ask me, this new coach I just hired in the league is really smart. And I said, that'll only help him if he can coach. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a lot of X's and O's, but it's the people that make a difference. And you can and, teach, you know, you have that mm -hmm. communication skill. Yeah. And speaking of that too, you, you, you speak a lot, don't you at conventions or for business? I have, I, like I, not, you know, I don't get invited as much anymore, but, you know, at 83 years old, they, they go with the younger people, but I enjoy it. <laughs> I invest a lot of time and I, you know, I spent 35 years coaching the game and working as a leader. And I, I put together a presentation that I use. It's all written word for word. I don't present it as a word to word thing, but uh, I really, I really enjoy it because it's stimulating to me. I, I try to stay up with uh, the thinking as of today and, and learn from it and add it to my philosophy of the past and, 
try to do a good job. I enjoy it. I had three events scheduled, but due to the virus, they were postponed or canceled. Right, right. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's uh, a common theme across the nation yeah. and the world yeah, right now. Yeah. But I'm, I appreciate you taking the time out here to, you know, we're digitally or we're, we're uh, digital nomads being able to have an interview. <laughs> well, here. Believe me, you're not, you're not occupying real valuable time right now. We're out here <laughs> hibernating. I live out in the country on 110 acres of farm. Ah, there you, you, you can see by my outfit, I'm outside working as we speak. I just came in to do this. So I, did, I didn't get dressed up. Okay. Right. No, but again, I appreciate it. I mean, everybody has the things that they're trying to do in life. And I, I always appreciate anybody that's willing to give me any point in their time, especially yeah. even the listeners of the show, because they can listen or they can consume <coughs> any kind of content, but they decided for that hour to listen to what I'm going to talk about and speak. You, so you, let's go with football and you talk about leadership do you have anybody throughout your history like what did you who did you emulate or who did who really was your mentors to help you with that side of the game as far as working with people well you know i worked with so many different people i think everybody influenced me and those that i didn't agree with in their approach and leadership and it just didn't fit my personality that doesn't make them wrong but you know i i i had didn't change my leadership from hillsdale high school to the Super Bowl team or the Kansas City Chief playoff teams, you know, uh, I just, you had to be yourself, you know, and the only way you can truly uh, be trusted and uh, respected is be honest, be sincere and be yourself. And I couldn't be well, Bill Walsh, if I wanted to, he couldn't be Dick Vermeil, but I could be myself. But you do learn from everybody you take, you know, Chuck Knox was a very positive influence in terms of just leadership skill. Very intense, very easy to understand, very hard to misunderstand. <laughs> Don Ralston was a good communicator, great home visit recruiter, family recruiter. You know, George Allen had a great passionate way of selling. You know, he was very compassionate with his players. And uh, all these people influenced my leadership. But basically, I think my leadership skills come from the left side of my brain. You know, I just, I, I, I know I'm not a bragger or ego guy, but I, I always felt that I could easily communicate with people and I could understand what they were saying and I could learn from them and I could learn what I didn't want to learn from them and, and improve what I thought had to be improved and remain humble and move on, you know, and I, I think that's very critical in leadership. Yeah, I agree. And you don't have to be, you can remain humble and you're not bragging by any means because we have seen it as fans that how you've been able to instill the the passion, the the, I want to follow the leader type of mentality with your players and, and that kind of thing. And you've had success, of course, at multiple levels of the game, high school, junior, college, and then professional. What was the biggest change going from each level, like as a coach perspective? Like what was, what was the biggest challenge? Well, a long time ago, John Ralston, when I was a young assistant at Stanford with Bill Walsh and Jim Mora, he said to me, you know, he said it to all of you guys, you know, someday you guys are going to be head coaches and you're never ready for, you're never as ready for a head coaching job as you think you are. And the only way to really get ready is to get the job and learn on the fly. And that was so true. I wasn't ready to be the head coach at 23 years old at Hillsdale High School, but you learn on the fly, you get going and you win, you move on. Same in college, same at UCLA. Uh, was I ready to be a head coach at Division One at that? Probably not, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot, you know, by just going to work, going to work, mm -hmm. and then on into college, all the way into pro football, and from coordinators' jobs to uh, 
head coaching jobs at three different places. You learn a little bit. I was probably best prepared, totally prepared to be a head coach when I went to Kansas City Chiefs uh, in 2001. And Carl Peterson brought me back after I left the Rams. And uh, I really felt confident. You know, I know how to do it now. And it didn't turn out as well as it did at the Rams or Philadelphia, but it turned out well. You know what? And if I were to do it today, I think I could do it better, though physically you probably couldn't last the season at 83 years old like you could even in your 60s. But uh, to me, leadership qualities now are as critical as technical knowledge about the game. You can always hire people who know a little more than you do in specific areas. I've learned what's really important to know them, know the main things. Like I always used to say, the main thing is the main thing. That's the win. But you have to know what you have to have a vision, how you want to win and then put that vision together. And it always starts with hiring good people, hiring good people that care, that are good examples, that are built relationships, that are willing to go to work. I spent a lot of time trying to teach people that hard work is not a form of punishment. You know, it's a necessity. And I've never, I've never seen, I've just, I just know there's no correlation between uh, working less and getting better. So my whole philosophy was built around surround yourself with good people and go to work together. Yeah. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but one of the questions I ask every guest of the show is taking them back to the beginning of their career. But for you, let's say the beginning of your NFL career, what piece of advice would you have given your however old self that was at that point in time with all this experience you've had since then? Listen, listen to the people that, uh, that you respect and admire. Listen to them. I became, I became a poor listener, Hmm. not in regard to X's and O's, but in regard to, Hey, you can't keep working 20 hours a day during the season and sleep in your office. It's going to catch up with you. You know, and I, I I wouldn't listen to him. I didn't listen to Sid Gilman. I didn't listen to Lynn Stiles. I didn't listen to Carl Peterson. I didn't listen to my owners, my pro football team in Philadelphia. Uh, you said you're going to work yourself out of the business, which I did. You know, I, I allowed a, a a passion for the game to become an obsession, and I couldn't turn it off. And therefore, I wasn't as effective a football coach or as effective a leader. I couldn't get over a loss, and a win didn't last very long in terms of excitement so you know it was a lesson learned but if i would have really listened to the people they told me i couldn't do it but and it wasn't an ego thing i just didn't believe them (laughs) yeah that's a hard thing to do when you're when you're in something and just it's always my grandpa always says listen with the ears not your mouth son and that's how i guess it's pretty common but it's it's hard to really do that. And that's why I think separates a lot of the good leaders from the ones that have challenges. And you mentioned when you, the first time you retired and you were burned out, then you went into broadcasting for, it was quite some time. How, how many years were you in there for? 14 years. I worked with a lot of great guys. I learned a lot of football. For five years, I was on a college football field 90% of the time. Uh, when you're broadcasting national games are always big games, big teams, good coaches. Then in the NFL, I was, I mean, I was in, yeah, in the NFL for five years doing it 90% of the time, then college football for uh, nine years doing it. That's what it was. And uh, a big time game with Brent Musburger, you know, Gary Bender and these kind of guys, all great, you know, great guys. Roger Twible. I learned a lot from watching the coaches coach, great football coaches. I'm, you know, I've said in Don Shula's meeting rooms, top Bud Grants, 
all these and watch them coach and then on into college, watch, you know, Osborne's and uh, probably Bill Snyder, Tom Coughlin. Bill Snyder and Tom Coughlin were probably the two finest football coaches I watched coach on a field. And you learn from those guys. And by the time I decided to go back into coaching, first I found out that not everything I did was wrong. Some of the things I did was real, really good. And I learned some better things from other better coaches by being in broadcasting, <clears throat> being in their meeting rooms, being on the practice field, studying their game films and working with the likes of Brett Musburger. Yeah, I would think you're able to take it from a whole nother perspective and then yeah. be able to apply those new skills and things that you've learned into your second coaching, second stint, I'll say, in the NFL. Yeah. And you mentioned Tom Coughlin was one of the, the best on-field coaches. Oh, yeah, what, by far. What would be maybe a specific example or type of event that would cause him to be that in your mind? Well, he's a strong leader, very structured, extremely well-disciplined had extremely well-disciplined football teams in every category, in a meeting room, on the practice field, fundamentally, technically, execution, under pressure. Uh, I saw him beat teams he had no business beating, <laughs> but because he and his coaching staff did an outstanding job. You know, Tom Osborne was outstanding. Now, Bill Snyder at, at Kansas State was as good as the best, if he wasn't the best. You know, it just, when you walked on the practice field, it looked like game day. They, they executed work so hard, so disciplined, and you, you're, the scout teams servicing uh, the home team and getting ready to play on that weekend, you couldn't tell them from the starting team. They were so, you know, everything is extremely well done, and uh, they, they leave great impressions. Don Shula, you talk about a commander-in-chief on football field. Bud Grant was totally different. He walked on the field very relaxed and laid back, in it, but everybody knew where he was coming from. He didn't have to say much. There were, I was all the great Bill, Bill Parcells, my God, uh, you know, all these guys, I watched them coach, talk to them in their meeting rooms when I, after I left coaching, you know, in, in 82 and the likes of Joe Gibbs, you know, you really get to know these guys when you've been a coach. Now you're in broadcasting their games and you talk with them, talk football. You talk about what I did wrong. Some of the things I did right. I, I learned from them. So it, uh, it's a great way to make it's stealing for a living. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's almost like you have a different, almost like a brotherhood with them. So I wonder if they're, they no were question. willing to share more with you or in a different light than they would someone guys, else. Uh, certain coaches, you know, for example, Don Shula, when I went into broadcast one of his pro games, <clears throat> he wouldn't let anybody in television on the practice field or in a meeting. I was the only one. Why? Because he'd beaten my butt a few times. <laughs> he said he can't be that good. So, he, you know, he just gave me a free reign to prepare to present his game uh, on that Sunday. And I found that often amongst new coaches. It's, it's, a, it's a fraternity for, for the most part. I don't know if it's the same way today where you sort of protected each other because you're all being over-evaluated and you're all in situations you're going to be criticized and ridiculed. And... Uh, you know, uh, and when you all go through it, you know what it's like. So you support each other, yeah, uh, loyal, loyalty-wise. And you mentioned you don't know exactly because you're not in it right now, but what does it mean to Dick for a meal to be a coach at any level, regardless of what, what we're talking about, even regardless of sport? Well, I think all of us have to recognize what our gift may be. A lot of people go through life and don't find what their gift is, so they just make a living. You know, and 
I, I found that I, uh, I had a, uh, a great passion for the game. I found I had a tremendous compassion for the kids that I was coaching. And I, I found that uh, going to work wasn't a way to make a living. It was a way to enjoy a living. Going to work was exciting. Now, when I allowed that to overpower me in 81, 82, when it really started coming on, that wasn't true. That's why I left coaching, because I knew I wasn't doing as good a job as I should be doing. So you left 81, 82, went into broadcasting, and you came back with, which most of us remember you and my, my generation as the St. Louis Rams. What, what drove you to do that at that point in time? Well, the, the St. Louis Rams uh, were the Los Angeles Rams. I'd worked for them and that ownership as a young assistant. <clears throat> they knew me. They had offered me the job, the opportunity to come and be their head coach at, at other times earlier that when it was open and I wouldn't do it. And finally, at 60, 61 years old, I said, if I don't do it now, it'll be way too late and no one else is going to offer me a job. So I took it. Thank you to Georgia Frontier and John Shaw and Jay Sigmund. And, uh, and in three years, we got the job done. I went home, which was a mistake. I don't sit here and regret it. No, like, I wish I hadn't done it. But, you know, I'm an emotional guy, sometimes too emotional. And I thought it was the right thing to do career-wise and for my family and for me personally. So I went home and I found out six months later, <laughs> actually, <laughs> when I was handing out the Super Bowl rings at the party, uh -huh. uh, what did I do? You know, yeah, that's Carl Peterson, the Chiefs and Lamar Hunt came and talked me into taking that job. Now, I so again, going back to my remembrance of that Super Bowl and at the very end and you holding your, I believe it was your grandkids and saying, we've done it. We did it. And what was that emotion being able to go through that and share that with your family at that time? Well, that, you know, that kind of emotion is hard to put into words, especially if you're not an English major, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I would say it, to me, it was humbling. And it, it it became, it was never about me anyway. I never put myself as a leader. It's all about me. And you guys just follow me. It was always about my team, my players, my staff, and my people. And then when you accomplish something like that, for me, that thought permeated me more than it ever had in my lifetime. It was very humbling and a, uh, a great feeling to know that you, I was sharing this experience right now with the city of St. Louis. All, all my personal family, all my personal friends, everybody in my organization, all my team. Uh, and these moments will never be forgotten. They are lifetime thoughts. And, and they're great examples of what can be done when people all work together. And I hopefully a lot of people, I know a lot of people on my team and my coaching staff that I continually communicate with uh, on a weekly basis, a lot of them, that. Uh, they use that as an example for the rest of their lives and pattern it. You know, if you surround yourself with good people and go to work, you can win a lot of games. Yeah. And of course you, again, going back to my history, my, it was one of those moments that so many people in the nation wanted to root for your team because of the, the you had to overcome some obstacles, of course. I mean, that's no, no uh, secret with Trent Green going down and then Kurt Warner coming up. Uh, it was it was different then for after that. How watching your team on the field against the Patriots and the first time they won, 
what was that like? You know, oh man, I wanted to be there kind of thing. You're, are you talking about the Super Bowl game that Rams lost? Yes. That like, how was it? And I, I don't stands watching the game. <laughs> and I felt as bad as Mike March did in losing it. You know, you, mm-hmm. and because all those players, 90% of my, I, we brought there in the three years that I was there. So I, I felt sorry for them because they were still, yes, ex-players, but most of them all good friends. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you, you feel it. You know, you don't feel it like you would if you were coaching the team, but still you, you, you know what it feels like to lose. And no one can appreciate a Super Bowl win as much as they should unless they lost one. Mm-hmm. Right. You have something to compare it with. I've learned over the years to recognize that it takes the same thing to get to a Super Bowl game and lose as it does to get there and win. You know, it's not like baseball and Major League Basketball where it's the best series of seven. You know, lose the first one, you got six to go. Now, that's not true. So, in fact, my Eagle team did more to get there and lose in five years than my Ramted team did to get there in three years and win. But it's just, you only had that one opportunity. When you were in that moment, did it pause for you or did you like get that, how people feel in the movies where it's like, I paused, I'm looking around and I have this like. Yeah. My first thought, <laughs> I've seen pictures, send people, fans send me that picture. I get two or three a week of the exact same picture, me raising my hands. And at that time I was saying, we are, it's over. We are world champions. <laughs> and that, you know, and that's, that's just the, 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 I think probably the finest statement you can make in an NFL coaching career. You only get to say it when you win it. Right. Yeah. And there's never won it before and you'd lost it before. Hey, hey, we are world champions. No one else can say that. Yeah. And um, as a Detroit Lions fan, I I haven't had to have that bitter loss defeat kind of feeling, of course. I like their coach. You like it. So do you uh, go ahead and speak a little bit about him for me? I like his structure. You know, I think he makes people mad. You know, I've always been a believer. When you take over, I've taken three losing teams over. Two of them were the worst losing teams in football when we took them over, the Eagles and the Rams. You're always going to make people mad. And if and they're, usually you're going to make them worse before they get better. You're going to lose a few good players. You're going to develop some players that no one thought were any good. And you build on that. But you don't do it unless you have structure, discipline. And losing teams lose because more often than not because they don't have any structure. They don't have a discipline. They don't have an intense program. They, they go from day to day trying to win games rather than trying to build a program. I, this kid comes from a great program led by Belichick. No one has ever done it better. He knows how to do it. And he, yeah, I think if they're patient with him and he has the inner leadership skills, I think he'll get it done. Yeah, as a Detroit Lions lifer fan, I hope so as well. And you mentioned building a team, and of course it takes time, and I'm patient myself. Uh, when you're a coach, and what quality or qualities were the most important for you when you looked into getting a new player? Well, you know, every position's different. You always start with character. And then from then on, you, 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 you know what it takes to play all the great positions, you know, and play it well. So you look for those attributes of other great players. I've coached a ton of guys that are in the hall of fame and uh, two going in this year, two wide receivers going in this year, Harold Carmichael, Isaac Bruce, both different style but I know what their attributes were and you can, once you've been around them and, and you can visualize what they look like and, and remember what they look like. Then you wouldn't start looking at younger people that have aspirations to play like these guys do. 
you can you can sometimes you can really say, hey, this guy's got it, or this guy's doesn't have what Isaac Bruce has. You know, he doesn't have what Tory Holt has. He doesn't have what Harold Carmichael has, or he doesn't have what Trent Green has, or he doesn't have what Kurt Warner has. He doesn't have what Orlando Pace or Willie Rope has, you know, but you can make a comparison. You don't forget good example. You feel it. You forget good opinions, but you very seldom forget good examples. And you mentioned this year Hall of Fame, and this is the centennial, so they're going to bring up more than they typically would. Uh, you were in the game for quite some time. What was the biggest change as far as the NFL over your career, you think, as far as either the style of play or whatever it may be? Well, two things have changed dramatically from when I came into the league at uh, 1969, and I was head coach in the Eagles in 76 through 82. But during that period and even coming back to the Rams in, in 97, all the way to the Chiefs, and to today, I'd say there's more great big fast guys playing the game. The, the game is more wide open and spread out. The volume of what you see offensively is tenfold of what you used to see. Uh, the defenses are much more sophisticated. You can do more. Uh, I, I liken it to if you bought a 1980 Cadillac, like our Super Bowl team. Well, hell, that's the, our Super Bowl team was a Cadillac team. We're in the biggest game. Okay, we're in that category. Uh, but that same Cadillac isn't nearly the car in comparison to the 2020 Cadillac. The whole thing is more sophisticated. How it's prepared, how it's manufactured, how it's coached, how it's disciplined, how the game is played, how it's officiated, how the rules, it's all changed. It's all bigger, faster, more money involved in it by far. Uh, so it's hard to compare. The, the grassroots fundamentals, I think we're better in the old days in a lot of ways because you spent more time with the individual player. Now you spend more time on volume, less time on contact. That's controlled by the union, less time on the practice field. That's controlled by the players union. So all those things are different. The game itself though is far more sophisticated, far more wide open. It may be more sophisticated and wide open. And one of the questions that I ask the every guest of the show too, is I'm going to give you the keys to my DeLorean you can go back in time to any point in NFL history, preferably maybe before your time in the league, so you can be there, present, and observe, but you can't change the outcome. What moment, game, person are you going to go see? Well, I probably enjoyed the 70, 80 era myself as a coach more because I was younger. I was my head coach. I had full control, 51% of everything done with a football player. Uh, I coached my own quarterbacks. I was my own offensive coordinator. I called my own plays. After being out for 14 years and coming back and taking the Ram job in 1990, I couldn't do that anymore. I was out of the game too long. And I missed that part. And I, uh, I had, to be, had to be careful I didn't screw up people and uh, interject too much of, of the old ways of doing things. And I, I had to do a better job of making sure the environment was great for my coaches to coach in. The discipline was great, so the players are in a frame of mind to be coached, and I had it organized in, in, in detail so they they could coach successfully. Uh, so, the, but uh, I I loved that era because it was ten man coaching staff. I had the largest coaching staff in football with ten guys, hmm. ten guys. Okay, no one had that many coaches, so I had an advantage. Why I had ten guys at UCLA and we won the Rose Bowl. I need ten guys. I don't. I didn't think I would need twenty like I had in my last career job, but anyway, that's my thinking. Yeah, it's uh, definitely changed. Of course, 
from the coaching players, everything, technology, even the coverage. I mean, I'm on a podcast talking about the yeah. NFL where that would have never even been heard of during your yeah. first time with the league. Um, so you've, you've been with the NFL then after you've gotten out or maybe even before the Vermeil wines, what was your um, passion there? Well, you know, first off, I needed something to do. And I grew up in the Napa Valley, north end of the Napa Valley, Calistoga. Everybody there was in the vineyard business or the prune business when I was a kid. My grandfather, Vermeil, made all our own wines. He's the Frenchman. <clears throat> My Italian grand great-grandfather brought the family to the Napa Valley, and he was in the wine business and owned some of the vineyard that I get great from today. And I, I used to help my grandfather Vermeil make our wines when I was capable. And I always maintained a passion for it. And then in 1999, I went to some of my friends that still lived in Napa Valley that were in the wine business and say, can we make some Jean-Louis Vermeil Cabernet? That was my dad's name. That was my great grandfather's name. I'd like to put their name on a wine bottle because wine was so important to our family. And uh, he said, sure, I'll do it. So he made 150, 200 cases a year and sold it as his Cabernet out of On the Edge Winery. Paul Smith did a great job with it. We did that until 2008. Some friends with real hard money came and said, let's take your process, your people, and turn it into a full-fledged business. We did. Now we're making 2,500 cases a year. We've matured. Paul Smith is still a partner, but not our winemaker anymore. Uh, Thomas Rivers Brown who is the Tom Brady winemaker in the Napa Valley hmm. and Andy Jones make our wines. Our, our wines are inex not, expen not inexpensive, 2,500 cases of wine. you got to make good wine, a lot tougher than the NFL. NFL's got 32 teams. we got over 500 wineries in the Napa Valley you're competing with. But we make very good wine, and they only get better. And I enjoy it. I enjoy it. It's a tough business. Right now, due to the um, – uh, virus our tasting room in napa is closed our wine club can get their wines we have about 375 members in our wine club now that get shipments three times a year people that are, love good wine just google vermeer wines they're not overly priced and they will compete with wines that you're paying more for i promise you <laughs> well that's cool that you have a passion that was like you said it, i didn't know it was driven from a family based yeah. and i think that's cool that you're able to honor you know like you said your grandfather with the name there too and uh you said that was he um your father part of the wine business then too or was my that grandfather oh great my father's father my father's grandfather on the italian side of his family was oh. in also gone business on a part-time basis he was very successful in san francisco made money he was from tuscany area luca italy luca barga actually and uh Napa Valley reminded him of that area. So he started buying properties, including the home I was born in. It's still there. Hmm. Uh, so uh, it, it's a great heritage. And I, I, uh, I respect it. I salute it by being in the wine business and having a Vermeil name on a wine label. It's not an ego thing with me. It's actually more work than I thought it would be. It's actually <laughs> tougher than I thought it would be. Sure. If I lived out there in Calistoga, it would be a lot easier to be successful, but we haven't made the playoffs yet. I'll tell you that <laughs> only in quality of wine. Well, there you go. You, you have something to strive for. And, um, coach, well, is there anything else that you have to share with the fans of the show? No, I, just, I appreciate the opportunity to talk football. I don't get it as much as I'd like to anymore. Uh, and I miss it, but, uh, you know, and I, I enjoy it. I really miss Sunday football right now, especially <laughs> During this hibernation period, we're all in nothing to watch on Sunday afternoon really gets me. But anyway, good luck to you. Thank you for the opportunity.
All right. Thank you too, sir. And you have yourself a good day. Take care. How about that? Coach Vermeil. Man, he's just such a good guy. I'm thankful that he was able to take time from working in his yard to come out and give us an interview. An extremely knowledgeable guy. A coach, a leader on the field, but even off the field. He had a way, unlike many other types of coaches, and I believe that his players really did grasp onto that type of leadership and coaching style, and just, they wanted to go to battle for him. Of course, they wanted to go to battle for the team, but they wanted to go for the coach, and they wanted to win, which they ultimately did. Super Bowl Thirty Four, Kurt Warner and the Rams taking it home for St. Louis. But this week's My Favorite Football Moment comes from Jimmy Grant. He says that the Dick Vermeil era in Philadelphia was his favorite as an Eagles fan. Take it away, My Jimmy. Jimmy Grant. I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. This one's easy for me. 1980, Wilbert Montgomery's 42-yard run on the Eagles' second play from scrimmage to set the Eagles off and running on their way to the NFC Championship. Might be because I was a kid. You're nostalgic for that time period, but what a run. And it's a moment that no matter the Eagles could win 10 Super Bowls, but the 1980 Eagles will be, will remain my favorite Eagles team of all time. Pat Summerall with the call. Thanks, Jimmy. And I tell you what, here's another one sent in by Gary Jajora. Now, I wish we had a recording, but there's other ways for you to send in your favorite football moment. Because if you want to do the same thing, you can. You can just fill out the contact form. This is what Gary did. I kind of wish he did send a recording because this is a guy from down under. But let's just say, uh, maybe I shouldn't butcher it and use his accent. I'm just going to read it verbatim. Here we go. Quote, My favorite moment was filming my Miami Dolphins team at their training facility doing candid camera stuff with them. It was back in 2003 and got to take photos with their two Lombardis. Love you all to check out my comical book, NFL Clichés, available at NFLCliches.com. End quote. And speaking of his book, I'll go ahead and include links to that in the show notes for you as well. And if you're interested in sharing your favorite football moment, or even maybe you got to state your case for someone you think should be in the Hall of Fame, you can head over to myfootballmoment.com for the details. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice 
as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.